everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. Every week I come on here and I answer your mental health questions. We usually get through anywhere from eight to 10. Today, I think we only have seven because we have a few kind of longer questions with a lot to get through. But if you were looking to get your questions answered, I do have a Patreon account. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton and you can join at the $20 tier. It's just a monthly membership. You get to ask a question that will be answered in that monthly live stream. So if you're looking for that, I'm over there and you can find me. There's also other tiers depending on your budget. So no need at $5, you get access to all the live streams and stuff like that. So you can find something that works for you. But without further ado, let's jump into this first question. This question says, hey, Katie, I have been seeing my therapist for a year and a half now, and she is amazing. I love to hear it. I have made so much progress and she's been so supportive. However, sometimes her boundaries with me are not very strict. She allows me to text her outside of sessions and sometimes extend sessions for no extra cost. She shares personal anecdotes. They do help normalize things for me, but also I know a lot about her life and relationships. At the beginning of therapy with her, these things helped a lot. I loved knowing that she was going above and beyond for me. However, I have attachment issues, and recently I feel like these things are making me overthink a lot, and I get anxious about whether she's going to reply to a message or whether I'm her favorite client, whether she likes me, whether I'm annoying her, etc. I know I should ask her to be stricter with her boundaries, or I should see a different therapist, but she's helped me so much, and I'm so attached to her, and I simply don't want to leave. The temptation of learning more about her and receiving her care and support for longer means that I am unwilling to create stricter boundaries with her. What should I do? Okay, this is a great question and there is a lot to unpack here. And first off, I do want to say that I believe every therapist should have very clearly communicated boundaries. And these boundaries should be upheld by the therapist and reinforced by the therapist. And it's really the onus is on us as the therapist to place and uphold these. Now, there are times where, like I said, like sharing personal anecdotes does have its place, but it shouldn't get in the way of the therapy. And you should never feel like your therapist is talking about themselves more than you get to talk about yourself. Does that make sense? And also the texting and the emailing in between sessions should be very minimal. Here's why. Because unless we're in a crisis or unless we have to reschedule or there's just like a check-in, right? Because I've checked in with my patients too when they're having a tough time. You should be able to do things on your own in between sessions. And if not, then we should be seeing each other with more frequency or looking for higher levels of care, okay? Um, because the whole goal of therapy is to get you to do things outside of therapy and do okay with it. Now, does that mean you can never check in? No, <clears throat> but that means that we should be very acutely aware of when we do and why we do and talk about it with our therapist, okay? So I have to put that out there um, because I know there's always miscommunications, misunderstandings, and some people think that this is okay. And I'm not saying that it's, there isn't a time and place for it specifically, but this shouldn't be occurring in therapy consistently. Okay. And so the question, you know, what should you do? The truth is you should talk to your therapist about it. I know we get scared to bring this up, but truly this, there could never be better homework for you than this. The ability to talk about how valuable this has been, but also how you see the limitations it's causing is going to be so difficult yet healing for you because this means you're speaking up for yourself. If we're struggling with attachment issues to acknowledge that this is playing into it 
and our role in it and the ways that it was helpful. This is all incredibly healing. And while I know it's horribly difficult, I couldn't have given you a better homework assignment. Do you know what I mean? This is like exactly what you need to work on and what you need to talk about and do. Yes, I know it's hard. Yes, I know it's going to take some practice, but start imagining what that conversation could look like for you. Because remember, as a therapist, we don't take things personally. This isn't about us. This is about you and your time in therapy. And any therapist that's worth their salt, which I'd assume yours is very good at her job, is going to hear that and be proud of you and be like, thank you for letting me know. I'll, I'll adjust accordingly. You know, um, sometimes we might not realize that we're doing things that could be overstepping it or playing into your attachment or any of those things. So really, you should let her know. Now, I know you're like, I don't want to create stricter boundaries. I don't want to do this. Of course you don't. That's going to be part of the therapeutic work. And bringing this up doesn't mean it has to happen overnight. It just means that we're acknowledging that this is like playing into an issue that we want to work on. And we think it's like reinforcing things that we don't want to reinforce. That doesn't mean that we're ready to change. And you could even say that. I really love the way it is. I don't really want stricter boundaries, but I'm afraid that I might need them. I think that's fair. If I heard that from a patient, I I wouldn't be angry. I wouldn't be upset. I wouldn't, it would frankly just be me being proud of them for speaking up. So that's really my advice. Bring it up, start talking about it, and start working on it. Just because we've acknowledged something's a problem doesn't mean that we are ready for the solution. I know that people often think that like, oh, if I bring this up and my therapist is going to want to change it. Y- yeah, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight. And that doesn't mean it's going to hurt your relationship. It'll actually make it healthier and it it will allow you to see that boundaries aren't a bad thing and that they don't take from you, that they actually give to both people in the relationship, if that makes sense. And so sometimes, just like final thing on this, because there's a lot of questions after this, um, is that change is always going to be uncomfortable, but it doesn't mean that it's not necessary or it isn't healing. Most of the things that I had to work on in therapy personally were things I didn't want to do, like Uh, to stop people pleasing, stop apologizing, stop being so available to people. That was all homework that I had to do for my therapist and then acknowledge what came up. And then when she would tell me to do homework, sometimes she would want me to not do it, but she wouldn't tell me. She just told me that sometimes it'd be nice for me not to do it. Do you know how hard that was for me? I know that sounds silly to some people, but to me, that was like fucking torture. And at the time I was so annoyed. I was having such a, I was like, oh my God, this is so ridiculous. I hate this. This is bad. But God, it was so helpful man, I needed that. Otherwise, you know, my life could be totally different. And so just know that things that we don't, things that we, that are going to be good for us don't always feel good at the beginning. Okay. Now there were a lot of comments on this and it said, one says, I actually have the same issue. I've been seeing my therapist for three years and she does share a lot of personal stories that relate to things that I'm going through. I can't imagine going to another therapist because it takes me a long time to open up to people and finally, and I'm finally making progress. That's amazing. Some sessions are not good, and she sometimes talks more than I do. I don't know if I should probably tell her to stop talking about herself or talk less. The truth is, is, again, bring this up. You could say something like, you know, I finally, I'm I'm so grateful. We're going to hug and roll. I'm so grateful for all that you've done for me, and I really feel like we're finally making progress. But lately, I've noticed, and this I know it's going to be hard to say, but you can put it in your own language. Lately, I've noticed that sometimes I'm just like, not talking as much in session. And so you're filling the space. That's how I would say you're filling the space with stuff about you. But I need to be challenged to talk more about myself and to 
work through it, you know, put it in that way. So it's like, I'm not talking, therefore you're talking. And, you know, that's how we can phrase it. But remember, again, that therapy and therapist, it's not personal. This isn't about us. This is about you as the patient. If we're making it about us, we're not doing our job. And I don't think any therapist would be offended. Sure, therapists are human. And we might have a thought like, oh, my God, like I might apologize and be like, oh, my God, I didn't realize I was doing that. And then in my head, I'd be like, shit, Katie. But that would make me better. Again, it's all beneficial. It would help me. I've told you guys probably this story over and over and over. But I remember... And I, I don't remember how it was like probably my first year working at the eating disorder treatment center. And you remember, you guys, it wasn't my specialty. It turned into it because I loved the job so much, but I just started. I was probably like maybe six months in, let's say. And a patient came up and was complaining about her arms being fat. And I put my arm next to hers and I said, you know, can you see this clearly now? I didn't know what I was fucking doing. She looked me straight in the eyes and she's like, is that what they taught you in school? You think that's going to help me? It was something to this effect. And I've shared this story before because it's just, it was a tough love from a patient of mine that I will always remember and will always be thankful for because it challenged me to be better. It challenged me to be like, what the fuck are you doing? Why do you think that? Yeah, you're right. And then I took a bunch of CEUs. I read a bunch of books. I attended all the things they were offering at the treatment center to better myself. And I became a better therapist as a result. Was it hard to hear in the moment? Sure. But isn't all constructive criticism hard to hear in the moment? So don't don't worry about it. And I loved that patient. I, there, I never, like, there was no animosity. I wasn't upset. I was very grateful and thankful. So just consider that when you're putting this together. It's okay to tell a therapist, hey, I don't like that you're doing this. I think it would be more helpful if we did it this way. Or, hey, I feel like you're talking more and more in sessions. And I feel like I'm not getting much time to talk. We're people too. Sometimes we just don't realize something that's happening and it will make them better. So speak up. I know it's going to be hard. I don't think you need to switch therapists unless this continues and gets worse, even though you've actually clearly communicated about it. Okay, next comment on this says, as an add-on, I always worry that I will overstep boundaries. I'm allowed to send emails in between sessions. I'm autistic and am way better able to express my thoughts in writing than verbally. She doesn't always answer, and I don't expect her to, but sometimes she does. I just worry I'm writing too often and asking for too much. I'm only able to see her twice per month due to her limited capacity, and I think that's also the reason that I end up writing an email in between. There's so much happening, and I do feel like I need more frequent sessions. Any advice? Is it wrong to email her? No. Um, I have a couple of patients, uh, I don't even know how many, quite a few over the years, who email or journal better than they say in session. And I've had patients bring in their journals, want me to read it in front of them. Or they'll email knowing that I don't reply. No, I never reply. And that's a boundary that I keep because I found with, especially because I deal a lot with BPD. You have to remember like my background and what I treat a lot in my practice was eating disorders, self-injury, and borderline personality disorder primarily. I also have patients with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, social anxiety, test anxiety, uh, marital problems, all sorts of things. But primarily you know, the BPD eating disorder type of patient. And those patients I find in my experience thrive with clearly defined and upheld boundaries. And it helps us feel safe and secure in a way we might not have before. Okay. So I never reply, but you only see her twice per month. I I would continue to ask if there's ever an availability to see her more often, because clearly, like you said, you need more frequent sessions. I understand she might not have the space, but I would want to be top of that list when the space opens up. Um, But there's nothing wrong with that. 
I think that's that's perfectly healthy. I think when writing is easier because we can put more thought into it, especially you're saying you're autistic and so it's difficult in session to open up, probably difficult to feel okay enough to do it. I think that's a great workaround. Now, my encouragement would be to work with yourself, you know, do the emailing, but then also challenge yourself to speak up a little more in session. You know, that's going to be part of the work. How do we soothe? How do we regulate our system so we can speak a little bit more? You know, we want to consider that and challenge that. There's nothing wrong with it. And I want everybody to know that what your therapist communicates, again, it's up to the therapist to create and uphold healthy boundaries. And they need to communicate that with you. What's okay, what's not okay. Like, for instance, the boundary of the email for me, I tell my patients, you you can email me in between sessions. However, I want you to know that I don't reply to them. But if it's helpful for you to get it out in between, I will read it at the beginning of our next session. I know some people are like, you wouldn't read it in between sessions? No. Because that could mean that you're emailing me, again, boundaries. Emailing me each and every day, that'd be a lot for me to keep up with potentially. And I don't want to get caught in that where I don't have time to read, you know, 30 pages of emails because I've had that from patients before. But I will take the time at the beginning of our session to read them. And this has helped my patients keep their emails more succinct and also speak up more about it. And I can ask questions in the moment when I'm reading it. It's just better for all of us. I know some people might not like that. I might not be your style of therapist. Every therapist is going to be different. However, boundaries are really healthy and really key. And having this overstep or this uh, increased dependence upon a therapist is going to make it harder for you to transition out of therapy or to do more on your own. And again, that's the entire goal. If we're needing more and more and more support, we might need a higher level of care. I know people get scared of that, but I'm just here to tell you that that there's no judgment. There's different levels of care because we all need different amounts of it. And there's nothing wrong with taking some time and, you know, going to a full like four or five hours of group therapy individual every evening. There's nothing wrong with that. No judgments. We're just all at different levels. And that's why there are different levels of care available. Okay. Um, and so because your therapist told you that it was okay to, to email, it's okay to email. Let's move on to question number two. And this question says, hey, Katie, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I have a question about repressed memories. Now, this is the longest one. We have a ton of comments after. We have a ton of thoughts and things we want to know. So just buckle up, okay? I have a question about repressed memories, flashbacks, and body memories. Why would you only begin to have flashbacks and other kinds of reactions once something has been revealed to you, such as a repressed memory? or something that's never bothered you until you start to talk about it and unpack it in therapy, then you start having flashbacks or something. Logically, I get it, but there's a part of me that just feels like I'm doing this to myself. I don't know if it's relevant, but I'm, I also dissociate a lot, and that's something I'm trying to work on, but it just seems to be getting worse at the moment. Thank you for sharing all your wisdom, of course. Now, like I said, there's a ton of comments after this, but let's unpack this first. Now, flashbacks, repressed memories, come back or reveal themselves. When we first start working on trauma and processing through things, because we're finally in a place, first of all, that we feel okay enough to do this work, right? We can't work on trauma when we're currently being traumatized, right? It's called post-traumatic stress disorder for a reason. It's after the trauma. Therefore, to even work on our symptoms or potential PTSD, it has to be after the fact and we can't be actively being traumatized because it's not okay or safe for us to open up and start talking about it. 
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Got it. Got it? Okay. Now, once we start to like open Pandora's box, right, and get into our trauma, this is going to kind of unstuff some of the feelings and experiences that we have worked so hard to stuff in the past. Now, I know we talk about stuffing things a lot, like stuffing emotions, stuff, stuffing feelings, stuffing experiences. I want you to know that I know a lot of people are like, well, why would I want to get into it then if they're going to come out? Because the stuffing is so exhausting. Stuffing how we feel and stuffing past experiences and pretending they don't exist, stuffing grief just makes us cope in other ways. This could mean that we're exercising a lot or overeating, undereating. This could mean we're shopping a lot. This could mean we're just zoning out on social media for hours and hours. I know. I know. I'm not judging you. I'm not saying that I don't get on social media either, but it shouldn't be all day, every day for multiple hours. That's not healthy either. It could also mean we're drinking or doing drugs at a more intensive frequency, or maybe we never did. And now we do. There's a ton of ways that we are can, like trying to keep stuffing that down. And so even though it can feel more comfortable for things to be stuffed down, maybe because we're just coping with all our unhealthy coping skills, I'm here to tell you that it, it's not what's best for us. It's, and it's exhausting to keep doing that. I like to think of like trying to hold a balloon underwater. That's a lot of effort. It's a lot of strength and consistent strength to keep it under there day after day, year after year, right? So the reason that these things start coming up is because we're slowly, like that balloon underwater, I guess, a good example, we're slowly letting some of the air out of it. And that air can mean memories float up to the top, flashbacks happen, maybe dissociation, dysregulation happens more often because we're putting ourselves back in that position. We're talking about the things we went through and we're acknowledging all of that stuff. We've been stuffing things down for a while, so there's going to be a lot that has to come up. And unfortunately, it's like I've talked about it like Monica Geller's closet. How when she, do uh, you guys remember that if you're not a Friends fan, Monica Geller is a clean freak, but she has this closet in her apartment. She doesn't want anybody to go into and it's like her where she throws things she doesn't know what to do with. So it's messy. It's, it's chaos. And it's like we've opened up that closet and we pulled everything out and we're like, oh my God, right? It can be overwhelming. We can feel like we want to quit. We can have flashbacks. We can feel hypervigilant. We can feel dissociated. But then your therapist is going to help you organize all of those things and put them back neatly so that it's not so scary it's not so overwhelming and it's not such a mess anymore and so that's really why these things are happening now the flashbacks are coming the dissociations happening the repressed memories are flooding back just make sure that you feel like you have enough resources and coping skills to help you manage while you go through this because while it feels shitty right now it will get better but that shitty part we're going to need to have a, like plenty of things to help us manage. Now, grounding techniques, you can stomp your feet, you can put cold water on your face, count colors around the room, how many things are blue, brown. I've talked about a ton of those things. You can do full body shakes. That can help bring you back into your body. Um, but we're going to also have to learn what our triggers are and what can cause a repress or cause a flashback to like flood us or what causes a repressed memory to come, you know, shooting back as well. Because I would like... I want everybody to know that flashbacks, body memories, 
uh, repressed memories, all of these things can feel similar. It can feel like we're watching a film of ourselves, like flipping through a photo book. We can feel like we're right back in there in that very moment. We can just feel the sensations in our body, like body memories, right? There's a lot of different ways our our brain and body can experience these things. And so we're going to have to have different uh, coping skills for each of them and also understand the triggers that can cause them so that we can notice hey, I'm ramping up. It doesn't feel good. What do we do in that moment? Then we we utilize some of our, you know, coping skills, uh, resources, whatever you want to call them. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. Um, but getting worse, unfortunately, is kind of normal at the beginning, but it does get better. So hang in there. Now, there's a ton of comments on this. And the first comment says, this happens to me too. Even though I've been working on my trauma for what feels like a long time, I get body memories. That's where the parts of my body hurt as if it's happening again. For me, that's worse than the visual flashbacks. How do I make them stop? Especially the ones that feel like it's happening again in that place on me again. Let your therapist know. And I would encourage you to try, if you don't have someone who does somatic type of therapy or somatic experiencing as a like specific type of it, but somatic therapy is essentially like moving parts of your body that feel uncomfortable, get tense. It's it's trying to move the trauma through your body. The body shakes I was talking about, like when you really shake out, those might be really beneficial to you. That might actually help maybe even when this is happening. But let your therapist know this is happening. Um, we might want to do some grounding techniques. We might want to do some body movement as we talk about things. Now, I know that can sound really weird. I know you're like, Katie, that's kind of woo-woo. But being able to keep ourselves in our bodies. I know we hate it. It's uncomfortable, but keeping ourselves in our bodies, acknowledging the trauma, the pain that we're experiencing, continuing to stay in our bodies and, and use some coping skills to better manage is going to help us get back into ourselves and not be so dysregulated and not have such intensive body memories. I know that sounds kind of weird, um, but there can be a lot of, and you might have movements. This might sound strange too, but, and I'll do videos on somatic experiencing here soon. Maybe I'll do a whole workshop on it, but you might have movements that you just feel compelled to do. Like, I know that might sound weird, but when I feel super stressed when I was a kid, I just wanted to like run. And that was like, I just felt compelled. Now, do I like to run? No, I don't think anybody really likes to run, but let's say maybe you do good for you, but that's not me. Okay. Maybe you want to punch. You know, so maybe you join a kickboxing class or maybe you get yourself a punching bag or, a you know, boxing bag thing, hang it up in your house or have like the little men, you know, you can hit. Sounds crazy. Maybe that's what it works. Maybe you want to kick your feet. Maybe you want to lay on the floor and kick your feet and throw a tantrum. I don't know what it is that you might feel, but if you have any of those kinds of urges, non-harmful urges, maybe engage in them and see what comes up for you. Because, I mean, I've had patients who, you know, it's hard for them to to do anything and be in their body for any amount of time or they can't shower and they can't put clothes on or put lotion, you know, it can get really, really um, difficult. And so we have to find ways to kind of bring us out of that panic, overwhelm, get us back in our bodies in a safe and okay way. And somatic treatment's really great for that. And some of those other things I offered want to have some some tools to use, right? Okay. Um how do I make them stop? Yeah, that's and it. Understanding our triggers too can help because then if we know we're going to be triggered, we can have some coping skills at the ready and we can utilize them right away. Okay. Another person asked, also, what if I just had one flashback 
I've struggled with most of the PTSD symptoms for a while now, except for the flashbacks. As far as I remember, I've only had one. Over a year ago, the sensation and emotions, intense anxiety, feeling of losing control, despair, pain, of being touched inappropriately, inappropriately, sorry. It felt as if it was really happening in that moment. I have no other memory or indication of this. I'm pretty sure it was a flashback, even though I'm glad it only happened like this once. I wonder why I haven't had more flashbacks. Is it possible this never happened to me and my mind made something up in that moment? Or what could have been the reason for me not having any more flashbacks about this? Is it possible that I was overwhelmed with dealing with other issues, so this one possible incident just came up once, and then my brain decided it was too much to deal with now? For context, I struggled with some other traumatic experiences in my family from when I was a teenager as well and have been in therapy for three and a half years now. I'm 20, and more specific trauma symptoms started about a year and a half ago. Dissociation, hypervigilance, anxiety, and intense negative emotions are already a lot better, and I've built up many resources. Good. Love to hear. I do sometimes have and have had nightmares and dreams about sexual assault, but, that, but could that be connected to my other trauma as well? Now, the number of flashbacks we have, I honestly believe, depends on our ability to cope and triggers. When we feel really overwhelmed and things are stressful and we're already trying to work on things, and it, that can cause a flashback. It, you know, if we have trauma in our past, that could trigger it. Because it's not just having a trauma that means that then we'll have flashbacks. Those don't necessarily equate to one another. It's really about us managing the symptoms. And so having one is totally reasonable. Having thousands, also totally reasonable. It's really just about our ability to cope. And for, from what you said, it's possible that you, you know, were going through a lot at that time. And therefore, that's why we only had that one flashback. Now, our urge to minimize and invalidate a flashback or repressed memory is always super, super common. Um, I know this doesn't always work for everybody, but something that can help is try working on a trauma timeline. And that means for the traumas that we remember, we place them in as best as we can. Then we, you know, place this one. Maybe it was around here. I seem to be about this age. We start working, putting it together, moving things as we learn more because we might have thought, oh, I think this happened when I was 10. And then we realized, no, I had started middle school, right? So that would make me, you know, 12 or 13, depending on when you went to middle school. We can work on it that way. So I would just encourage you to start doing that. And then it's also okay to be a detective, to ask around if you have a safe family member that you can kind of ask about things like a cousin, a sister, a brother, you know, even if you, let's say a mother or father, maybe only one of them was harmful or hurtful, or maybe who hurt you was another member of your family um, or a babysitter, right? We need to ask about it. Ask about things. Hey, I had this flash of a memory and I was wearing this and I remember so-and-so. We might don't even have to give all the details about like what it really was and just be like, did I make that up? I don't remember this person or I don't remember that time. And they might be able to tell you more. Um, you might be surprised what your family will remember and things. They might even just draw conclusions that you're like, oh my God, yeah, because you were a child and you didn't know that that's what you were seeing. You know, they'd be like, yeah, your mom dated a lot of inappropriate men. And you're like, I guess she did. I just forgot, right? Because we blocked it out because it probably wasn't good. And, you know, there's a lot of things like that. Or, oh yeah, your mom was always drunk. And you're like, what? And then all of a sudden you look back and you're like, yeah, I just didn't know what alcohol was. And that was what was drunk, you know? So, um... All in all, 
Let's be curious about it. Let's put it on our trauma timeline. Let's work on that. It's very common and okay for us just to have one flashback. That doesn't make it any less valid than if we had thousands of them. Um, and I think it, it's possible that incident just popped up because of extra stress. You'd have to tell me. I'd be very curious about that. But it might not be a good time to work through it. You might still be under a lot of stress or duress. And that's why we haven't had it pop up again. Or you might be working on other things. And so, you know, this one doesn't isn't the strongest or most difficult emotionally for you. There can be a lot of different reasons. I'd encourage you to let your therapist know. Let's, again, plop it in there. Tr like, just for sake of the judgment now, we, we assume that it happened in the way that you remember. But we can also then do some detective work, ask around, and see what comes up. Um, I just, I always trust up front because why would you make that up? Do it, why would our brain want to make that? I don't understand why that would happen. That doesn't make any sense to me, right? And it's such a knee-jerk reaction to want to minimize or invalidate, especially when it comes to trauma. So I'm glad you have your resources. That also might be what's helping keep the flashbacks at bay. Um, but I would definitely talk with your therapist about it. Let them know this happened. Put it on your trauma timeline and let's work from there and see what we can remember. Um, now, the nightmares or dreams about sexual assault, if that has, is in your past, if you were sexually assaulted or sexually abused in some way, that's incredibly common. Our brain tries to make sense of what happened and tries to like retell and retell and retell. And that can come up in our dreams too. That can also be a form of a flashback. We can have nightmares like that too. So all connected, I believe, um, you know, because you have repeated traumas and have complex PTSD, this is all, it's kind of part of the like web of our trauma. Okay. Now moving on, someone said, I've recently started trying to talk about some of my childhood and I've also noticed that symptoms are getting worse. The depression, hopelessness, overly strong startle response and memories coming up, etc. There's possibly emotional abuse and neglect, some physical punishment, no marks left, and I've had flashbacks of sexual assault in the past. How do I know if the sexual assault flashbacks are true or just something that my brain has added on top of everything else to feel more valid? I struggle with showers and my body as a result of those. Okay. Again, I don't know why your brain would add those in. I have had patients in the past tell me that when they were emotionally neglected, that they just wish their parent had hit them because it's easier for them to acknowledge physical abuse versus emotional abuse. I've heard that. No one, and, and I'm just being honest, no patient of mine in all the years and online, in my practice, in all the treatment centers and hospitals I've worked, no one has ever made up a memory about a trauma. They just never have. Now, people can lie, but that's not what's happening here. Now, patients always lie. You know, did you do the homework? Yeah. Did you eat everything that was in your... Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Meal plan? Yeah. Lies. But that's different. This is a memory that has come up and you're like why you struggle with showers as a result. You keep having these, you know, these flashbacks. Where would those come from if it didn't happen? 
why would your brain make this up? We think it would want to feel the way that it feels. I just don't. And so, you know, question that a little bit. Let's challenge this because that that in wanting to invalidate and that want to to tell yourself it's not true, I think is protective and it's probably what you've done to get through the traumas in the past. But I'm here to tell you that it really does not, it really sounds like these flashbacks are real and the memories that are coming back are real. And I would assume it's probably because you're in therapy. I don't know if you said you are, um, but you also had, you know, emotional abuse, neglect, physical punishment. There's been a lot going on. And as you start to talk through this, I wouldn't be surprised if more things pop up and more memories, you know, show themselves or maybe even get more than just flashbacks of the sexual assault and maybe, or I don't know if it's sexual assault or sexual abuse, but it says SA. So sorry if I've been saying it wrong. Um, but either way, why would we make that up? We wouldn't. Let's trust ourselves. Let's be curious about it as we learn more. Okay. Now, somebody else said, um, as an add-on, how do you deal with the grief that painful memories, body memories, and especially nightmares just seem to pop up at the very first time that you feel safe and are starting to get happy? It is so sad that once our life seems to open up, you seem to find a way to uh, live gratefully and happily. Just at that time, the memories are coming up intensively, so intense that they're destroying, destroying everything that you built up, every hope that was in you, everything you thought would lay before you. How do you deal with that frustration? Having the chance of making our own decisions and having felt joyful and happy. And right then your PTSD comes in and makes it worse than it ever was. I like this question because I think a lot of people go through this and we haven't talked about it in a while. And the reason painful memories, flashbacks, body memories, all that comes up when you start to feel safe and happy is because your brain and your body are telling you like, hey, hey, I'm, I'm here and now it's time to work through this stuff we've been hiding for a long time and we've just been like coping with, right? Just trying to keep it at bay, doing all we can to just stuff it back enough that we can survive. When we start to feel good, it's safe enough to dig into that. I know it sucks. I know it's frustrating. But if you can reframe it, think, yes, this feels like shit, but I'm so glad that I finally am in a place where I feel good enough that I can actually work on this stuff. Because the truth is, if we're able to work on it, it won't come back again. And then the next time we're happy, it won't be ruined with these horrible memories and things that happened. And yes, I know it takes time. Yes, I know it takes effort. But it's, it's, it's actually a good sign. Now, there's nothing to say that we can't be mad about it, that we can't be sad about it, that we can't feel all the things, that we can't feel like, finally, I'm getting to feel good and happy. And then you're like, fuck, it's coming back. And we can grieve. You can want to grieve that difference, right? I wanted this life and I thought it was going to happen. And now I feel like this. Blech. And we have to grieve that difference. And like I said, feel angry, feel mad, feel sad, feel all the things. But continue working on it because it is a good sign. It actually means that things are improving and it gives you an opportunity to finally heal, which you so very much deserve. Okay? I know it sucks. But hang in there. Um, and having an outlet, even you talked about the frustration and just being so annoyed with it, having an outlet for that frustration, having a way to vent could be through nasty journals about how mad you are talking to your therapist about it could be some physical exertion. I used to have a patient who I would have them like play squash, like hit the ball bah, bah, into the wall over and over and imagine that it was like, you know, for them, it was something different. But for you, you could say like, imagine this is like the trauma memory. Or imagine this is a flashback, ah, you know, or the person who hurt you. 
and beat the shit out of that ball. Um, but whatever you can do to to get that frustration out, because the truth is that it's it's actually a good sign, even though I know it sucks. I know it sucks. But at least we're in a place where we can now work on it. Okay? Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, I was wondering, how common is it to, quote unquote, forget trauma? I know my brother was sexually assaulted by my dad or sexually abused, I guess. I have no clear memories from zero to 12. I can give you a detailed description of my elementary school and my high school, but I can't remember what my bedroom looked like when I was a kid. I have nightmares about sexual abuse. I do have weird and dubious memories about me and my dad, but I'm just wondering, can I make this all up? No. Again, ask yourself, why? Who would do that? Why would you want to make it up? Because it's fun? No, right? It doesn't feel good. We don't want it. And why don't you have those memories then? Okay? So I just don't know. I'm in therapy and I'm diagnosed with complex, complex PTSD from other abuse that I endured during childhood. You're not making it up, but forgetting trauma is incredibly common and here's why. When we're traumatized, uh, there's kind of like two things that can happen. Number one, we can in the moment dissociate, right? It's too overwhelming emotionally. We're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. It's too stressful. We feel threatened. We are in danger. We're, we worry about our safety or the safety of someone else or our life. Ugh, someone's hurting us, right? It's bad. We dissociate. Now, dissociation call, like almost always causes, not 100%, but like a lot of the time causes what is known as dissociative fugue, which is when we have no memory. So these lapses in memory can often be due to dissociation. And that could mean we don't actually have memory of that time because we were dissociated. Okay, so that's possible. Second, remember, there were two. The second is that the memory was too painful, too overwhelming, that in order for us to survive and thrive and move on, we had to stuff it deep and try to forget about it. And every time we remembered it, we'd say that didn't happen. That didn't happen. Or we'd distract ourselves or we'd numb out with food, eating disorder behavior of any kind, self-injury, shopping, alcohol, drugs, sex, other, like I've had patients become hypersexualized, you name it. People have done it as a way to cope with it coming up. So that's why you kind of, quote unquote, forgot the trauma. It could be because the memory doesn't exist due to dissociation or we stuffed it down so deep that, you know, it's repressed and we can't access it because maybe we don't feel safe enough to do so yet. Okay. Now, there was a comment on it that I have the same. I also have almost no memories from zero to 15 I'm diagnosed with complex PTSD because of emotional neglect and abuse, but I also struggle a lot with intimacy. When I have sex, I usually go into a freeze mode or a sort of intellectual mode where I analyze from an outside perspective what we're doing. For example, I'll be thinking, now he's rubbing his body against mine. I do this to avoid feeling overwhelmed. I find intimacy very disgusting and even shameful. I feel ashamed for wanting to have sex and getting pleasure out of it. It's like I can't let go of the control and cannot let myself enjoy the moment. If I would enjoy it, it would feel wrong. That's interesting. These intimacy problems bother me very much, and I want to have a healthy and normal sex life because that would make life and my relationship so much easier. My question is, can these feelings be caused by attachment issues due to emotional neglect and emotional abuse, or is there something else going on? It could be emotional abuse. And here's why. And even emotional neglect a little bit. Emotional abuse could come out of like one of the common things I hear from a lot of you is the religious abuse that you sustained like the purity culture the thought that like having sex makes you dirty and bad and you'd never go to heaven or whatever you were told right 
I grew up in that type of religious background as well. Impurity culture was extremely toxic and for some reason only applied to girls. It's very interesting. So I count that as emotional abuse because we could have been kind of brainwashed over the years to believe that sex is dirty and bad and it makes you bad and, you know, whatever we've been told about it. And our parents could have even judged someone in our life who was having consensual healthy sex and been like, what a whore or, you know, what a dirtbag or whatever. And so that kind of language, that kind of um, emotional abuse that we could have sustained as well as just like brainwashing could affect us and make our intimacy, sexual intimacy for us later in life really difficult. Also emotional neglect. If people never touched us, never loved us, never told us that we were important, it can be really hard for us to accept it later. Now, the way that you're describing it and the fact that, you know, um, you find intimacy very disgusting or even shameful sounds to me either purity culture got you or we have some sexual abuse in our past. Now, if there's no memory of it, I'm not saying it definitely happened. I'm saying that's something that I would explore and be curious about with your therapist. Now, no one should put memories into your brain that don't exist. I'm not trying to lead you in any direction. I'm just saying that it's worth looking into because there could be something else going on. But if what I was saying about, you know, like growing up in that purity culture or just religious background, that emotional abuse from that, the the purity culture, the religious abuse could have caused this type of reaction. And it it can give the same kind of response as a trauma response. Again, because it's still abuse, by the way. But I want you to know that we can be deprogrammed. We can unlearn those things. We can work through our traumas and process it and go on to live healthy, happy lives and have a very healthy, happy sex life. And the Courage to Heal workbook is really great for that. If you find, you know, that we think it was childhood. I also find it very suspicious that you don't, um, oh no, this is the other person. Sorry that, oh no, zero to 15. You have no memory. Sorry. I thought I was reading something different that was from another comment, but that lack of memory makes me really suspicious too. Okay. So dig into that and hopefully you're able to find some answers. Now, another comment said, I don't think uh, I don't think you're making it up. Just the fact that you have those blank spots in your memory may suggest some trauma. Agreed. Says Katie, I have I have had this weird repetitive dream about sexual abuse since I was very young, maybe two or three. Could this be a repressed memory? Yes, it's possible, especially since it's repetitive and it's probably like a nightmare. Those we can have flashbacks in dream form aka nightmares they're incredibly common they can make it feel like we don't get to sleep then and people i've have friends and uh patients over the years who are like i just feel like i never get a good night's sleep and i'm like that's because you're essentially being traumatized every night so of course you don't feel rested you know because you're not really resting um so yeah i would bring this up with your therapist i would talk about it and i would be curious not judgmental about it let's be a detective we could ask other people in our lives like do you remember this person do you remember this shirt i think i was wearing you know we can talk about things look for photos there can be ways for us to look and be curious, not judgmental about this repressed memory or this repetitive dream, find out what it is. Um, but the fact that you've been having it for so long, it just makes me suspicious. I think it could be a trauma. Let's dig into it. Okay. Um, another comment said, will I ever get memories back from being a young child? How will I know what is true versus what I can make up? Now, the memories... If we don't have them, if we were dissociated, the memories may not exist. That's something, unfortunately, that if we weren't present and we weren't able to make that memory in the moment, it won't be there. But if we weren't dissociated and it wasn't that that caused us to not have the memory or to forget it, right? 
then they can be brought back into active memory, right? They can be found or unrepressed, I guess. Um, it just takes time and it takes time working with a therapist, maybe doing EMDR or schema therapy or any, there's a ton of different ways. Talk therapy is a great avenue. Remember, it only works for about 40% of people. So that leaves about 60% of us thinking like, what? And we're going to need something additional. Um, so just be kind and patient with yourself as you do your trauma timelines, journal about this and do the work in therapy because it, it can and will get better. It just unfortunately just takes some time. Okay. And also remember, in the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, he talks about the fact that we can trust repressed memories. They've done studies on this, and they follow people for years and years, and their recollection of events was very similar, and their you know facts to support it they found. All in all, we can trust our repressed memories. Okay? So how will I know what is true versus what I can make up? You can do some detective work on that. Again, why would you make it up, though? I always have to push back against that. I know the urge to invalidate and the urge to tell ourselves that we're making it into a bigger deal, that minimization is so common with PTSD. But I'm here to tell you that nobody wants to feel terrible. Nobody wants to make up trauma. I've never heard of that happening. Just think about it. Why would I want to pretend that something bad happened to me, right? Now, again, people can be liars and they can be like attention-seeking in that way. Is that what's going on with you? Or are you getting some special treatment? Because no, right? Why would you make it up? Now, the final comment on this says, how do we even start healing? I mean, therapy is the best place to start. And there's, uh, you know, low cost options like BetterHelp. I link in my descriptions. I think you get a discount if you use my code Katie or click that link, betterhelp.com forward slash Katie, I think is all it is. It's in all my descriptions. You can get a discount there. There's Talkspace. There's... Uh, therapists always work on the sliding scale. You can ask them about that so you can get, you know, quality therapy again at a lower cost. Um, journaling is also a great place to start if you're like, hey, I'm on a wait list for therapy. And it's going to be forever. Start journaling about what's coming up for you and what you're thinking about. And then use my video, the 25 coping skills to come up with some resources for yourself so that if you start to feel overwhelmed, try one of those out. There's a lot we can do. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply on our own. I don't, you know, encourage you to try to process all your own trauma. But I do think that we there's a lot of like insightful work we can do and resource building we can do while we wait to find the right fit. Okay. Now let's move on to question number four. And question number four says, Hey, Katie, I thought of my therapist having any physical, oh, the thought, the thought of my therapist having any physical contact with me terrifies me. If she stands too close to me, or the chairs are too close together, I feel very threatened and I panic. I've been with her for almost two years. She's very kind and patient. And I feel that I've been connected with her more than, or that I've connected with her more than any other therapist. I've opened up to her more than anyone else. And she, and I feel that she really gets me. That's really good. A few times when I've been very distressed or low in session, she says that she just wants to wrap her arms around me. She never has because she knows that I'm not okay with it. In many ways, I trust her very much. 
She holds her boundaries with me, which helps me feeling safe. She has never given me any reason to be afraid of her. So I don't understand why my body reacts in fear to her being close. It actually really upsets me because I know she's not going to hurt me. Have you? Do you have any idea why this might be happening? Thank you for being you. Oh, of course. Great question. Now, there's something interesting that happens when we finally feel safe with someone. And I think Alexa's talked about this when we did a video together or somebody else. But either way, when, when we feel safe, we can actually feel unsafe. Now, hang with me. When we finally feel, uh, I'm okay. We look around. No one's harming us. Amazing, right? Love it. When we finally feel that, our defenses go down. We can be more vulnerable to being hurt. Holy shit, we're more vulnerable. And then defenses go up or we can feel very terrified at that thought. And I think that might be what's happening here. You finally found a therapist you connect with. You finally found someone that you love that's supportive and like gets you and is kind and compassionate and patient. All the things. You finally found this therapist and you're like, hallelujah. But then you're like, why am I reacting like this? Because that's a scary thing for you. I would venture a guess that people in the past who you've turned to to help you and to uh, be there for you and people who you know you trusted they hurt you so last time you felt this safe quote-unquote safe you might have been harmed so now that you feel that way again you're like shit 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 and you feel scared now I would tell your therapist sounds like you already have but I would communicate this with her and, and talk to her about it we can be curious about this she's not gonna try to hug you all of a sudden or do anything to make it worse but this is definitely a trauma response in my mind and that's why that panic is happening and that's why you feel threatened because you feel safe and that's scary and that's okay it's kind of part of the process so yeah dig into that and let me know what you find out now there was a comment on this as wow I really mumbled that I'm sorry there was a comment on this and it says I have felt this way in therapy too like I would get seriously panicky if she was close to me or even past paperwork to me once I had dissociated in a session when I got up, my brain just couldn't figure out how to stand and I just went down. I ended up uh, falling and I sprained my ankle badly. She offered me her hand to get back up, but I shook my head. I completely shut down in shame um, of all of it. But also she was so close to me. I thought I would die. What's this about? I feel like I already answered that, but I just wanted to share this in case anybody else has had something similar where it's so overwhelming. You're like, boom, you know, it's too much. And again, I think it's a trauma response. We feel somewhat safe. Also, a therapist is asking us really personal things. So they're like kind of prying in there. Let them know what's coming up for you. Communicate about it. And yeah, I, again, I think that's why it's happening because we feel safe and that's scary. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, Katie, are feelings really always valid? Love this question. People often say one's feelings shouldn't be judged. I find that weird because if I always took my feelings as valid and acted accordingly, that's a kicker, but we'll get into that, I'd not function in my life. My first reaction to uh, quite some things is to avoid them because the feeling, my first feeling is fear or worry. So in order to not be stuck in my room, I don't listen. Um, so in order not, I don't listen to me being scared, gotcha, but instead try to consciously judge what the appropriate response is. That's called using your wise mind. But again, we'll get into this. The feeling is not accurate, appropriate, or valid, so I try to ignore it, or I try to. Due to this, I have such a hard time doing anything new. It's mentally exhausting to always use my brain to figure out so I don't have to worry. 
I was also told that I'm very intellectual, which is probably true, and I'm really bad at making decisions, which I think are connected. But what am I supposed to do if my feelings are a bad advisor? Do you have any perspective on this? Not a native speaker here. I hope my English is fine. It's wonderful. I love your podcast. You're a wonderful resource, and I've learned so much already. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad. Yay. Okay. Yes, feelings are valid. Meaning, you get to have them, and they're okay, and we don't have to stuff them down, judge them, or label them as good, bad, whatever. However, not all feelings warrant action. Now, when we talk about uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, we talk about how we have thoughts. Thoughts are just thoughts, right? Thoughts aren't facts. Then we have a thought, we have a feeling about it. Boom, I have a feeling. Okay, I thought, let's say my thought was, um, oh my God, this traffic is taking forever. The feeling is now I'm angry. But then the action would be honk my horn, flip somebody off, speed, create, you know, drive like a maniac. And that's not good. But I can have a thought and I can have a feeling and I can decide to do something different, right? So it's not that, it's not that the feel, the feelings are valid, but that doesn't mean that they warrant any action. I can feel upset, but if I yell at Sean, that's not going to be helpful. It's better if I'm upset and then I tell Sean, hey, you know, I've just been feeling really upset about this thing or that thing or this, you said this, let's say, and that hurt my feelings. That's better. That's me choosing. And that's why I said wise mind. So in dialectical behavior therapy or DBT, we talk not only about that thoughts, feelings, actions, but a huge component of DBT is just making sure that we're not working from emotion mind, which is what you're talking about when we have a feeling and we react out of it. Instead, what wise mind says is, oh, I have this feeling and it's a feeling. That's it. I'm not going to take any action about it. I'm going to contemplate it. I might have to back burner some of the things that I want to deal with or the emotional response might have to be back for later. I might make time right now to cry about something, but I'm not going to lash out. I'm not going to be reactive. Wise mind is able to see a whole picture and decide how to respond. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. There's a comment on this that as an add-on, um, I have so much to do, but I'm paralyzed with the feelings of being numb. But I also feel like I feel everything and my skin is crawling. I am paralyzed in my emotions so I can get stuff done. How do I feel my feelings and not get paralyzed? I hope this makes sense and goes with the first question. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of like parallel with it because the feeling of being numb is incredibly common and we numb out as a way to cope. So my question would be, are you living in a, in a situation or in a home or whatever where maybe it doesn't quite feel okay? Or do we not have a therapist where we're able to, you know, finally start opening up? Because numbness is common, but it's caused by disconnection and dissociation. And so to get you reconnected, we're going to have to have more resources, more coping skills, and able to like vent about things in a safe and healthy way. Okay. But he said, you also feel like you feel everything in your skin is crawling. This is really interesting to me. And I have a feeling we're doing this all or nothing. We're swinging from feeling numb to feeling everything and being reactive and overwhelming. So we're swinging from completely zoned out, dissociated, disconnected, numbed out to emotion mind. And I want you to try to find wise mind. And so the way to get to feel your feelings and not get paralyzed is to start identifying them. And when you're identifying them, that means let's start with like one or two a day. What'd you feel today? Um, get the feelings wheel out. Got to start circling them. 
Then next step. So if, let's say that gets easy every day. You're like, I can come up with like five. This is I could go on and on. This is getting really easy. It might take you a few weeks to get there, by the way. That's okay. Then I want you to tell me where it is in your body. So when you feel excited, where do you feel it? When you feel angry, where do you feel it? What's it feel like? What do you experience when you feel sad? Tell me about it. Could be tense muscles if I'm angry. Um, could be hard for me to focus, right? Um, if I'm excited, I could feel like bubbles in my stomach and feel like I have to pee all the time, right? I know that sounds weird and silly, but we maybe growing up didn't feel safe to have feelings because maybe there was abuse or we were told to be, you know, seen and not heard from. So we just stuffed everything down. But now we don't even know what's in there. We don't even know how to identify what we feel. And so slowly, just like other people learned in their lifetimes, we have to learn it in our lifetime. And so we have to slowly acknowledge the feelings that we have. Maybe that also comes with some grounding and some coping skills, but we slowly identify them, how they're experienced. And when they come through, when things happen, because feelings come through, I want you to breathe. I want you to tell yourself, I'm feeling excited. And I know people are like excited could be bad. Yes. Good feelings can feel bad too. So whatever feeling is that comes through, I want you to tell I want you to tell yourself or pretend you're telling me, you know, Katie said feeling is just a feeling and it's going to pass. We can just allow them to pass through us. It's almost like, I don't know, like imagine like a ghost coming through you. I know that might creep some people out, but I can't think of a better one. But it's like something just passing by and it'll move right on. And that's how it'll get. But it just takes time. And I think you're swinging from all or nothing, either dissociated, disconnected, or feeling overwhelmed. And please, please, please let your therapist know this is happening. Because the skin crawling, I'm a little curious about that. Let them know that. Because I wonder if we're having some tactile hallucinations or if it's a, a bad a reaction to medication. I have a lot of questions about that one. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, Katie, why is it so important to me that I am believed? I recently started again with a new trauma therapist. Going over my story again is harder than I expected it to be. I'm so sorry. I find myself leaving certain things out due to shame. But, I, but also, I'm so afraid she won't believe me. Aspects of my story are not typical, or the way sexual abuse is typically portrayed and talked about. You're not alone, okay? I know therapy is about me and what I think and feel about what happened, but I cannot keep from wondering if my therapist believes me. I've never had a situation that I remember where I wasn't believed that would make sense to me then. But no matter what I do, I have this overwhelming fear that she doesn't believe me. That she thinks I'm making this all up and is going along with it purely because I'm crazy if this isn't true and I'm paying her. How do I get over this and quit caring if I'm believed so that I can actually do some therapy work? Okay. I love this question. And the short answer is, that is your work. This is coming from somewhere. Whenever we have these weird reactions or what we feel like is an overreaction or we're like, why the fuck is this happening? I want you, instead of judging yourself, to be like, Katie would say, that's interesting. That's a red flag for something else. Hmm. I have a big, big, big trigger about not being believed. Hmm. It really bothers me. I worry about it a lot. Every time I talk about things, I think she's not going to believe me. Where is that coming from? Have you ever, I know you said not, but like, have you ever had someone tell you that they didn't believe you? Do you talk so much shit to yourself and minimize or invalidate your own trauma experience for so many years that you struggle to believe yourself? Or do you try to minimize or invalidate over and over and over? You know, be honest. This might be even just 
part of the, and I don't say just to minimize, by the way, but it might be part of a trauma response in and of itself because we're opening up to someone and sharing and wouldn't it be painful if we weren't believed? Maybe we don't think that we could survive that kind of pain. Maybe. I don't know. I'm just throwing this out there because this is coming from somewhere. I would tell your therapist that you think about this a lot, that you are really concerned about being believed. And let's dig into it. Let's be curious, not judgmental about this because it's telling us exactly what we need to know. We just have to dig in and learn more. Okay. Moving on to our final question. Question number seven says, Katie, today my sister asked me about the self-harm cuts on my legs, and I told her I wasn't sure what happened and that I've been really clumsy lately. She didn't seem to buy it, though. What should I say if people ask about my cuts and I'm not ready to share? I get this question all the time, and I find the people who ask most, I'm not, I mean, this is your sister, so I'd assume she has the best of intentions, but some people don't. And I always tell people that you get to say what you want to say at that time. So here are some examples of things my patients have said or decided to say or we've worked on together to say over the years. One thing we can say is, yeah, I have a lot of cuts. I, I And this is if you want. I used to do that um, when I'd feel bad. It didn't make things better. I hate that I have them. Okay. That was one of my patients' ideas. Another one could be, yeah, I, I've, I've had these for a while. I don't really want to talk about it though. Or the short and sweet, thanks for asking. I don't talk about that, though. I'm not really comfortable talking about that. I know it's hard for us to say no, but no is a complete sentence. I do, or in this case, it'd be like, I don't want to talk about that. That's a full sentence. That's a full. We can just say no. People can ask all sorts of things. We need to normalize the saying, I don't want to talk about that, or that's not appropriate. I know this is your sister again, but we need to normalize saying that when people ask incredibly personal questions. People think that they're just entitled to a lot of information that they're not. It depends on our comfortability and what we think is okay. And so this is your sister. So it's going to be different person to person. But I encourage you, take some time tonight and journal a little bit about some options of things you could say. Could you say, I don't want to talk about that. Thanks for being concerned, but I don't really want to talk about that. Or do we want to say, do we want to make up a story? Do we want to say something like, yeah, when I was younger, I, I uh, got into this, like these thistles and these uh, really thick branches and they cut me. You can say whatever you want. I'm not judging you for lying. It's your story and you get to decide when you want to tell it and no one can push you. But I would really encourage you to say something very simple like, I don't want to talk about it. Or can you not ask about that? That makes me uncomfortable, right? People will, most people will apologize and move on. And then I would encourage you to have another subject to bring up. So as you're coming up with your ways to say, don't ask me about that, that's rude. I want you also to be like, and then I'm going to turn the conversation to our vacation that we're going to go on or how's work or school, or I'm going to talk about this cool thing that I learned on the internet or the last TikTok hack that I saw. Have something at the ready. So you say like, I don't really want to talk about that. But did you ever see, right, then go into something else. And also, if you cannot come up with a thing to talk about, people love to talk about themselves. So say, I want to hear more about you. How's work going? How's school going? How's that new relationship going? How's your friend? Anything. Ask them about them. People love to talk about themselves and it's always a great way to transition and get out of that uncomfortable conversation. Okay? Hang in there. I know it's hard and people are really nosy, but hopefully one, that's why a solid no is good because otherwise they'll keep, they can keep asking. 
And you could even say, I don't want to talk about it right now. And if I'm ever ready, I'll let you know. That's another good one. Okay. If any of you have good ways that you've told people, let us know in those comments down below. Thank you all so much for listening and watching. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework, take care of yourselves, and I'll see you next time. Bye.